Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I have the great honor of sitting down with the legendary Neil S. Godfrey. How do you summarize the background of someone like Neil? It's pretty hard, but I'll give it a try. She was the first female vice president at Chase Manhattan Bank, where she worked on some of the largest M&A deals in history. She's a multi-time New York Times bestseller, but only after buying a publishing company because she couldn't get a deal. She's the founder of both the first women's bank and the first children's bank, the latter of which was famously used by Princess Diana in New York City's FAO Schwartz. She's also the founder of the Children's Financial Network, where she has become one of the nation's top crusaders, advocates, and thought leaders on financial literacy. She's been a frequent collaborator with Oprah, an executive in residence at Columbia Business School, and has served on a number of boards for organizations including UNICEF. In today's episode, Neil shares a great deal about her life as a woman on Wall Street and the discrimination women faced, which sums up to about $2 million in lost wages. She also covers how she pivoted from banker to entrepreneur and author, the key issues with financial education in the U.S., her financial advice for kids and parents, and tons of great anecdotes along the way. Let's get started. Hi, Neil, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're excited to have you as a guest today. I am so happy to be here, Ryan. Thank you for inviting me. So where are you quarantining at the moment and what have you been up to these last few months? Well, I'm holding out in New Jersey, but I have a beautiful place. I'm above a lake. I have three cats, so we're just hanging out. Where in New Jersey are you exactly? I'm from Jersey as well. It's called Lake Mohawk. It's up in Sussex County. And I moved from Chester and move before that for Mountain Lakes, and move before that West Caldwell. I didn't make it very far. Yeah, that's great. I'm from Bergen County myself, so not too far away. Very familiar. My parents lived in Englewood. Oh, yeah. Very close by. Um, All right. So this might not be easy given how much you've been involved in over your career, but could you just walk us through your background up until uh, what you've been up to today? Ryan, is this like speed dating? I have to do it really quickly. All right. I'll (laughs) I'll give it a go. All right. I was one of the first female executives in banking in the United States when I began my career in 1972 at Chase, when they decided to have an experiment to hire a woman to go through the training program to become an executive. And what's interesting is I was hired at $11,000 a year, which is the same that men were earning. And then after two weeks, I was called into the office of the head of personnel who said to me, you're a young woman, you're taking the job of a man, we're going to reduce your salary to $6,500 a year. And she told me, you will never earn what the men are earning. And she was a woman of her word, I never earned. And when I extrapolated and figured out over the period of time, bonuses, raises, pension, it cost me over $2 million in having them pay me less than what the men were paid. Then I left First Women's after 13 years, I mean, Chase, and then went and became president of the First Women's Bank. And we needed a women's bank because the Fair Credit Act had not been enacted until 1974. That meant women couldn't get credit on their own name. In fact, my first credit card from Chase had my then husband's name on it and a permission slip from him for me to use my own credit. He was a law student and had no credit. I was the one with the credit. 
crazy, crazy. And as we honor RBG now, it's just not that long ago. And, and I lived through it. While I was at First Woman's, I watched women be uncomfortable handling their own money. And I thought that was goofy. So I was a single mom at that point of two little kids. And I went to look for books to teach my own children about money. There were none. The topic of teaching kids about money did not exist in the United States. So at one of the bookstores, my three-year-old turned to me and said, Mommy, why don't you write the books rather than schlep us to all these stores? And she saw the look on my face. Wait a minute. I know how to do deals. I know how to do stuff. I don't know how to write a book. And she saw the look on my face and said, oh, you're afraid. So being the great mother I am, I crouched, established eye contact and said, no, I'm not afraid. And of course I was. I was way outside my comfort zone. So I figured it out. I put my big girl panties on, figured out how to write a book about money for little ones. I created cartoon characters that have financial personalities. And if you're going to start a topic that doesn't exist, you go into the world's largest publisher. So I ran into Simon & Schuster and said, ta-da, I have a book that can empower kids and their families to take charge of their financial lives and design the financial life of their dreams. Their response was, there are no books to teach kids about money. It's not a topic of interest. Thanks for stopping by. So... I made it outside because you don't cry in front of them. So I made it outside and then made it a couple of blocks and said, put your big girl panties on. They need proof of concept. So I opened up the first children's bank at FAO Schwartz in 1988 and an institute for youth entrepreneurship up in Harlem to work with at-risk children. Both were a huge success. Back to Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster said, eh, there still are no books. Thanks for stopping by. So made it outside in tears again. And I said, oh, come on. When I was at Chase Manhattan Bank, I was doing merger and acquisition work and leverage buyouts. And in fact, was lucky enough to put together at that point, the largest merger in the history of the United States, which was the DuPont Conoco merger. So I said, oh, I can do this. So I bought a publishing company. I bought a division of Macmillan called Checkerboard Press. And at closing, the bank turned to me and said, by the way, you're chairman of the board. I didn't want to run a publishing company. I just wanted my book published. So obviously, I could fire everybody, which I pointed out in the first meeting. You will publish my book. They published it. We sold 50,000 copies of the book. I sold the company, went back to Simon & Schuster. They took me on as a property. And then the phone rang. My daughter came running in and said, Mommy, Oprah is on the phone. And I said, no, 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 no. Give me the phone. I have a friend who does Oprah impersonations. So I did Oprah impersonations to Oprah saying, go girl, give it your best shot. (laughs) I was like the biggest jerk in the world. Oh my my God. daughter held up a piece of paper and said, you can ruin your life, but don't ruin mine. It was Oprah. And I worked with Oprah on air for four and a half years. I did 13 shows. That book hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Millions of books sold, validated the need and the want for people to educate their kids. And it created the whole topic of kids and money. If we fast forward, I'm about to come out with my 28th book. So that's sort of my life. 
That's a more interesting life than most. That was awesome. <laughs> I can't believe you were on the phone impersonating Oprah to Oprah. Yeah, that might have been bad. That might have been That's bad. tough. <laughs> so backing up a little bit, where did you get this idea to join you know, Chase Manhattan Bank? Like you said, there weren't many women at all at, on Wall Street at the time. I could be honest or make up a story. I'll be honest with you, Ryan. I like you. I needed a job. My husband was in law school. I came out of college. I needed a job. And I applied for the job. I had no qualifications, but I applied and got the job. I did read about a pretty crazy story about you going to Brazil. Could you, uh, could you tell our audience a little bit about that? Right. That's a sad story. Yeah. I wanted to live abroad and chase got me a job with the Chase affiliate down in, in Brazil to move down there to uh, work in the bank in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And they were teaching me Portuguese. And my husband was all excited and learning Portuguese and studying international banking. And we moved down to Sao Paulo. We got an apartment. And my first day of work, when I walked in, the president of the bank said, wait a minute, your name is Neil Godfrey. You're supposed to be a man. And I said, yeah, I hate to disappoint you, but I'm not. And he said, we will not have a female banker here in Brazil. And they sent me home. And that was it. So that's, that was kind of it. And then straight back to New York and back, back to the desk. And that was it. And back into New York. Yep. They would not hire a woman. Okay. So go into the Children's Financial Network. Could you talk a little bit about more what it is and what problem it's trying to solve? We're trying to empower people to take charge of their financial lives and start with the financial education when the kids are little, because our children are born with the I want, I want syndrome, and we know that. And they have a sense of entitlement. And if you don't start those money lessons when the kids are little, they really grow up thinking money grows on trees, which is the name of one of my books. And so my whole thing was to teach the parents, teach the kids, create financial literacy curricula that I have for grades, you know, preschool all the way through high school. I teach earning, saving, spending, and sharing. So getting involved in charity is a very big deal, getting involved in investing. And my job is to make it fun and approachable and interesting and to get corporations involved who want to do this, to get schools who want to be involved, after-school programs, and frankly, everybody. And grandma and grandpa have more time on their hands, and it's time for them to get involved, too. So that's what I do. I love it. And kind of a two-part question here, but do you have a team around you that you work with? And then, you know, what KPIs are you tracking toward? Like, how do you define success? Well, the answer is I do have a team, but I managed to set it up so that I have the brightest and the best, but they're on the outside. I used to have a big team in my office, and I don't need that. I need people to do subcontracting and be out there in the field doing things. And our measure of success is really when we do financial literacy curricula, we do pre-post testing to find out if it's resonating with the kids. I've also created gaming apps with what I consider the brightest and the best. In fact, my characters needed a facelift, as we all do. And I hired a partner, Tom Hester, who did Shrek. And I went out there and lived with Tom and his wife for two weeks. And we designed 
a new character, and his name is Schmutz, because we all have Schmutz in our life. And Schmutz <laughs> is the protagonist that starts gameplay in the gaming apps. And now Schmutz has taken a life of his own. And I'm actually looking to partner next phase with a financial institution and with a media company who wants to bring these characters to life with offering real financial product for kids. So, you know, that's going to be the next thing. But it's better to deal with the experts than it is to have an office full of people. And that's how I've worked. And it's worked really well. So could you tell me a little bit more about Schmutz? What is Schmutz's, you know, financial situation? What are his or hers problems right now? Well, what happened was, is later on in my writing, I combined ecology and economics together. And I have a book and a program called The Echo Effect, The Greening of Money, which combines ecology and economics, because saving money and saving resources, the same behavior. So Schmutz is a metaphor for, it doesn't matter who creates the problem, economically or ecologically, we all have to fix it. So in gameplay, he messes up the place and the kids have to come in and do chores to earn money to rescue endangered animals and clean up the schmutz. And that's basically what the theme is. Oh, I love that. Sounds a lot like my house growing up. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of schmutz. And the name of that app is called Schmutz Happens. I want to learn more about your writing process, especially from a non-traditional writer's background. How did you sit down and march your way towards 28 books and mostly for children? It didn't get easier. And this last book, every time I write a book, I just cringe because the process is so hard. I write nonfiction, obviously, and I make it up. So it's easier than writing a novel and having a protagonist and all this other stuff. But it is hard. It's a process. And you just have to kind of go through the process. And you have to know that something that you want to say, have an outline, start filling in, and make sure you have your audience clearly in your mind. Who are you talking to? Now, when I created the first money curricula, I was doing that with Simon and Schuster. And I said to them, I want a writing team. I want expert in first grade language, second grade language, third grade language. I want to know how many words have to go on the page. I will translate it, but I need your experts to tell me a kid can only understand four words in a row. This is above their grade level. This is below their grade level. So we nailed it. And it was great. And my favorite book in that series, there are six books, is Here's the Scoop, Follow an Ice Cream Cone Around the World. And I'm teaching international economics to second graders. And every kid who took the course understood it because you can't make ice cream with just ingredients, for instance, from the United States. And I buy what you sell and you sell what I buy. And if a lot of people want it, the price goes up. And if nobody wants it, price goes down. So second graders understood economics and price theory. And we did it. So how did you get this book and this curriculum into, is it schools? Is it after school programs? Where were students interacting with this? Good question. Um, basically, Simon & Schuster had a, a wing, an area that sold into school systems. The way our school system works is you have to sell school system by school system. Then Simon & Schuster sold its educational area to Pearson Education and English Group. 
again, huge, and they were selling in. Here's the problem. Financial education is not part of our core curricula in the United States. So we couldn't get the attention that we needed as supplemental curricula. Millions of books were sold, but it didn't catch on because only 17 states in the United States of America have approved and mandated the teaching of financial literacy. That, to me, is pathetic. So what I did is I moved my thrust to mostly after-school programs, which service a lot of kids in our country. And those programs wanted to have some academic component that wasn't going to be the same stuff that the kids were getting during the day. So it wasn't redundant. And that's been one of the thrusts. And with one of my programs called Life, Inc., the Ultimate Career Guide for Young People, we have served 518,000 at-risk youth in the United States. So why it, it, everybody wants financial education and literacy to be taught, of course. And everyone says, I don't know taxes, but I know hydrogen is the first element on the periodic table. And I know about motifs in of, in of mice and men, but I can't do taxes and forget even learning to invest. Why is this only in 17 states? Because it's not part of the core, which means they're not tested to it. And the teachers are overstressed with what they are tested on. And they're not going to teach beyond their own evaluation. I don't blame them. It needed to be backwards. It needed to be part of basal. It needed to be part of core. And I started lobbying in 86. And then you sort of, I got sick of it. You know, I've been on every task force, White House, state, Senate, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm done. I don't want to study the problem anymore. We know the kids are financially illiterate. You just said it. Who wouldn't want this? And to me, it's rhetorical. Why are we having this discussion? Right. And look what happens when they grow up. Look at our debt. Look at the fact that, you know, parents have to borrow to cover a $400 emergency. Look what's happened in COVID. I mean, really? How much more reminder do we need that we need this? So I'm with you. So I just keep doing what I'm doing. Do you see uh, any kind of path forward in the next 20, 40, 50 years that there could be some kind of baseline financial literacy program? You know, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, we're kind of inching one step at a time. When I created this topic in 1988, I would have to start every meeting out by having somebody say to me from a bank or a financial institution, why would we want to teach kids about money? I don't have to have that conversation anymore. The conversation is, why wouldn't we do this? Now let's discuss the way forward. So there are a lot of companies that I work with who are in this space, who are very smart, who I think will have big inroads in this. So touching back on, on RBG, and I do want to mention here, given you know the recent news, so you've written articles for Forbes and Kiplinger, and the latest one was on her just incredible life's work. Can you talk about what it meant to be a woman on Wall Street during the 1970s and 80s? and throughout your career and what she did for women in your shoes? Well, I felt for her because when she graduated from law school, first in her class, both at Harvard and Columbia, I might add, and couldn't get a job because she was a woman, she was a Jew, and she was also a mother. So it hit home in terms of woe. And what she did is brought people to the table in a very smart, non-argumentative way. And what... I have tried to do is kind of, I can lose the battle, but I want to win the war. 
And it's very hard to keep your mouth shut when you're discriminated against, when you are sexually harassed and all those other things. And it's very, very hard. But I did. And when I left Chase, when I started, obviously, I was one of like, you could count on one hand. Actually, you could count on two fingers. But when I left my division, which is called Consumer Goods and Merchandising, one of the 10 divisions that the whole corporate bank of Chase had, I hired half women and half minorities. So I left it 50-50. So you kind of do it quietly and you do the right thing and you can succeed. And you pass that on to the next generation. Are there any companies out there that you currently admire? Are, is it fintechs like you know Acorns, Robinhood, and Wealthfront, or is it other companies that are preaching and acting through equality right now? Well, I work with a company called Drive Wealth. It's a fintech solution. It's an investing device. They were the first ones to come out with a fractional share situation. So I really love that. So kids through their parents could build a fintech solution and learn to invest. There's another company I work with called Greenlight. They have a debit card for kids that parents control. And it empowers children to take charge of their financial life in terms of having the ability to spend. And so there are companies that are moving into the new world that I think are great. And I'm lucky enough to be advising them um, that I think are going to have significant make changes that are necessary to have. And again, it's one step at a time. So there's been a lot of pushback against fractional share trading and teaching trading to kids and teenagers. And you saw, of course, what happened with Robinhood over the summer. So what do you say back to the pretty valid argument that kids shouldn't learn what can be spun as glorified gambling in a giant casino? I teach buy and hold. I do not create little day traders. This is not a game. I start with real tangible bills and coins that are going to be very obsolete soon, but I teach them that value. I mean, a Bitcoin isn't any more than a fiat currency. It's all fiat. So what I do is try to teach the pedagogy behind it and why we use it and the value and how long it took you to earn that money. That's the buying power of what you can do. And I want kids to get involved because I want to demystify the idea of the stock market. I want more than 10% of the population in our country involved in stock. And the others aren't involved. First of all, they don't really have savings. But the other part is they're intimidated. Demystify it. I work with at-risk children and the parents always come in and say, will you teach us about banking and investing? I've got groups of parents who are now on their fintech thing investing. But I want them to invest in companies they know. Don't get caught up in, here's the next hot. I don't care hot. What phone do you use? Are you, you know, having delivery package services fly your stuff in? Just do it that makes sense and trust your gut on that. You're going to make mistakes, but stay in there for the long haul. Do not listen to the ups and downs of the market. That's where you get in to the betting and the gambling and the up and the down. Forget that. Forget it. Put it aside. I think there's a couple hundred thousand people that could really use that advice right now, especially during the COVID pandemic. So kind of going off that, if you had to fit your financial literacy wisdom to an index card for somebody to kind of carry 
for the rest of their life. You know, there's that famous Pollock card that always gets talked about. What would, what would be some bullet points on yours? Well, my financial advisor, Mitch, said to me, which was great when COVID started, don't touch your face and don't touch your 401k. That would be probably my biggest advice right now. Just stay the course. But it's Mitch who said that to me, not me. And it's just stay the course. Make sure you are going to get older. You are going to have things that you want. Build the plan. Make your roadmap your roadmap. Don't listen to anybody else that you should have this saved or you should have this. You decide what you want. And then the consequences thereof on those decisions. And be empowered to do it. And instant gratification isn't always the best thing. So I'm sure you'll have a lot of parents listening to this podcast with young children. If you had to give them advice on, you know, what resources to best use or what resources of yours would be the best way to engage in financial literacy education with their kids, uh, what would you say? Right now, my book, Money Doesn't Grow on Trees, A Parent's Guide to Raising Financially Responsible Children, is kind of the Bible for parents with kids of any age to get started. It doesn't matter if you haven't started it's a little bit more difficult to start with teens. I liken it to potty training. If you didn't start potty training till they were on their way to the prom, it's a larger and messier job. But if you can start when they're young, then you know it's way better. But it doesn't matter. It's a lesson that has to be taught, and it's something that is going to be carried forever. I make it easy and fun and engaging and fit it into your own lifestyle. But make your world your classroom. Talk to the kids about money. Don't expect them to magically understand stuff. And the little ones have to understand that the only way you get money is to earn it. It's not because I whine for it. It's not because grandma is going to give me the money. It's because it was earned. And that's basically it. So switching gears a little bit, you're also currently an executive resident at Columbia Business School. Uh, And fun fact, I actually wrote about you in my essay when applying there. So what exactly is that role and what does it entail? What do you do for the university? Well, yes, I am an executive in resident and at Columbia Graduate School of Business and also an innovation fellow. I thought that the big perk was getting a garage space and a clicker for the garage, but they've informed me it's a little bit beyond that. I get to mentor the next generation of our business leaders that are coming out like you, Ryan, to help you look at your life, look at where you want to go and and give you advice and counsel and hopefully share wisdom. What kind of wisdom have you been sharing with your students over the last few years while there? Well, I think, think about the life that you want and think about kind of a road to get there and the steps that you're going to take. You don't have to know the end game yet. You never do. What you have to do is be open, be open to when an opportunity comes by and take a risk. We have no crystal ball. We can't look back and say, we should have, we should have, we should have. Just forget that. Move forward. Make sure that you're matching your values with what you're doing and the people you're working with, because that makes a difference. And are you giving back? I don't care how busy you are. What are you giving back? Because we are not here to take up space. And we privileged ones who don't have to worry necessarily about putting a meal on the table. What are you doing? And can you proudly say, I am contributing? And I don't care what that is, but are you contributing? And that's really the advice that I give. Have you seen any change in your students over the last few years? 
Well, they're not dressing like I do, but <laughs> that's good news. Yeah, I've seen a lot of students come back and stay in touch with me over the last couple of years, which is really great. So I love that. You know, I love to keep giving advice and counsel and they'll come out and say, I have two job offers and what do I do in which direction? And then I'll go through the counseling of what do you want to do? Who are the people? You know, what's the mission of the company? And, you know, is this going to resonate with you? And can you get educated enough to be able to take the next step? Or are you getting caught because they offered you $300,000 and you think that's really, really amazing. So it's kind of looking at life through a different lens. And since I've been there, done that, I've gone from major corporation morphing into being an entrepreneur. And being an entrepreneur is the sexy thing today, but it also is a fancy French word for living out of your basement and eating macaroni. My kids, when they were young, and I involved them in everything I was doing, because I went from being a bank president into entrepreneurship. And they would say to me, mommy, is it a macaroni night or is it a filet mignon night? And I was honest with them. It's like, eh, there were more macaroni nights in the beginning. So that's what life is. Toward the end of the interview, we'd like to highlight a more personal side. Have you picked up any new quarantine hobbies since COVID started? Besides eating? Um, my kitchen gets to be a destination spot. I haven't picked up hobbies. I had gotten hurt just going into COVID a little bit before I was with my grandchildren in the Dominican Republic and my kids and I got caught in a riptide and broke my knee and my ACL and MCL and everything. And I was basically told I'll be on a cane limping for the rest of my life. And I'm a horseback rider. I ride dressage and I have a horse and a place I ride in Spain. Not that convenient, but, um, and I took it on that, no, I'm not. I'm actually not going to be crippled. And thank you for the advice. They said they don't even operate on people my age. So of course my son was with me at the hospital for special surgery in New York with all the mavens. And he said, well, you take the old people out to the back pasture and just shoot them. I mean, you, you don't help them. So I didn't get shot, but um, I took it on that I can do this because I can. And I walk now without a limp. I can ride. I can dance. You can do it. So I think I would say that's a hobby because it was sort of self-preservation. And I'm doing everything else. We just were Zooming as we are today. I just don't. I don't see people. So when I had the sign made that says, uh, what does it say? Don't focus on Neil's messy office. So a lot of people cleaned and did stuff like that. I just made a sign that said, stop looking at my office. Let's get back to business. So, yeah. Yeah, it is. For, for our listeners that can't see the video, it is the first thing that you see when, <laughs> when the Zoom comes on. It's a great sign. It's, it's good. My students are really funny, though, because they don't want to point it out. But I can tell when they see it because then they start to smile, but they're embarrassed to say, nice sign. Yeah. So. Uh, but I think that's a great place to end. Neil, I want to thank you for your time and thank you for coming on the show. This was great. And I'm excited to get this out to our listeners. Thank you, Ryan. You're wonderful. And I look forward to following your successes in your career. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know your thoughts in the comments. 
If you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.